Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of the Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from the Athletics, Stuart Mandel. It is Sunday morning as we're taping this. Uh, Stu, it was a fascinating Saturday of games. Uh, one thing I want to really jump into is it felt like for much of the last decade that there was a real clear separation between these like five teams that have gotten very comfortable being in the playoff almost, you know, every year, almost like that. And now they all look pretty vulnerable. Do they not? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would say it's been the whole decade, but certainly for the last four or five years, there's been, I feel like that separation and um, three weeks in, I feel like everybody's beatable and it's a, it's what, you know, what, what has been the, the number one complaint from college football fans, it's gotten too boring. It's the same teams every year. Well, we watched Ohio State lose to Oregon last week. I would say they didn't look so great against Tulsa either. Oklahoma's got issues. Clemson's got issues. Uh, and Alabama, I'm not going to hit the panic button just yet, but after the Miami game, everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're going to dominate everybody again all year. And uh, obviously Florida unexpectedly took them right down to the wire. Uh, so there's a stat from Adam, Adam Rittenberg at ESPN.com late Saturday night. Uh, 19 top 25 AP top 25 teams have lost through three weeks. That is a record. So even more than the two, crazy 2007 season. So it does feel like even though, you know, we haven't had a equivalent of Stanford beating USC that year, Certainly, it's mostly been a lot of scares for the top teams. The field could be a little more wide open than it's been in some time. Yeah, I mean, I let's get into the Florida uh, Alabama game for a second. I the you know I picked uh, I picked Florida to keep it close. You know, it was a big spread; it was fifteen points, and obviously, it was a home game for the Gators, and I think that was going to be a charged atmosphere. I also thought there is something to be said for a team that doesn't really fear the aura of Alabama. And I feel like you have that with Florida. Um, in some ways they have, they like, they've looked their best probably in losses against Alabama. You know, like I would make the case, they came into the game ranked number 11 and unlike say um, Ohio state or even Clemson, you know, and I'm more of a creature of reactionary stuff to what happens in the, you know, when it comes to ranking teams than probably most people are. But like, I think Florida should move up from that 11 spot, whereas I'm looking at it saying they, to me, they, they are more, much more justified to be higher up than what I've seen from Clemson and Ohio State, certainly. I mean, I, I was very impressed by how they went toe to toe with them. They, you know, Alabama does not run the ball very well yet. You know, and it's got two elite linemen. That's two, but you do have to replace new O line coach. 
and obviously Bill O'Brien, new coordinator, um, as good as Bryce Young has been, and they jumped out, I think he had three touchdown passes in the first quarter. Uh, you know, it's the, we, no one, I think, was going to say this was a great Florida defense. That was a really bad Florida defense last year, and they played really hard, and they got a lot of pressure, and I thought it was a really interesting matchup. And I don't know if it's a one-off, um, but to me, Florida felt like it was it was it didn't feel all that fluky. I want to take it. I mean, it's easy to get into the Alabama part of this and we will, but I want to take a second and, and give a shout out to Dan Mullen. Um, you and I both have shown a lot of respect for him. Certainly when we do our top 25 coaches lists, I feel like he's kind of a divisive guy and a lot of people just don't buy it. Uh, if you, cause if, if you look at his Mississippi state record without any context, right, it wasn't that great. I would argue it's very good for Mississippi state, but that's another story. Uh, his, if there's one thing I don't think you can dispute is how great an offensive coach he is. And to that point, I thought they were going to take a big step back because when you look to last season, how much of it was that <clears throat> combo of Kyle Trask, Kyle Pitts, uh, Kadarius Tony, and they're all gone. Well, what does Dan Mellon do? He plays to his strengths. Last year, Florida was very much about the pass. Florida ranked 96th in the country in rushing offense last year. Right now, they're number two. And that's despite having just played Alabama. Emory Jones is not a guy who is necessarily going to wow you with his arm, but he can run. And basically, it just seemed like, especially in the second half, they just ran it down uh, Alabama's throat. And in part because you have to deal with a dual, a true dual threat quarterback in Emory Jones. Malik Davis looked good as well. Naquan Wright looked good. But yeah, Alabama couldn't stop him. Now, I watched Nick Saban's press conference afterward, and it was not a situation where he got on there and was blasting everybody and seemed really concerned. He just seemed mostly relieved that they got out of there with a win. And he just kept talking about what a tough, environment that was for Bryce Young to go into and if you watch the game it was a it was very loud and sometimes I think home field advantage is a little bit overstated or or certainly the crowd noise part of it maybe it's more the disruption to your routine but there were several points in that game when they got penalties specifically because of the crowd noise including at the one yard line one time I want to I thought of this late last night I wanted to suggest it to you we saw Alabama last year have one of the all-time great dominant seasons, despite COVID, which disrupted a lot of people's seasons. I wonder if there's one aspect of it that played to their advantage, Bruce. They never had to play in front of 100,000 people. They never had to go into an atmosphere like the one they did yesterday. Nobody did. Uh, it was pretty interesting to watch that crowd have a direct impact on uh, their ability to do what they want to do on offense. Yeah, I mean, it definitely it definitely was a home field advantage. I also thought that Florida looked like, I don't want to say the better conditioned team, but I mean, I don't want to say it, but that's kind of how it felt. It almost looked like Alabama was was just didn't have as much juice as Florida did. And I'm sure some maybe some of that was feeding off the home crowd, I think. Um you know, everyone talked about how sweltering and hot it is. It's not like it doesn't get that way in, in Tuscaloosa, certainly in the summer. So um, it was it was a really good game. I mean, I think one thing, and you and I do this a lot, and we know it, is you got to caution yourself on reading probably too much into it, you know. But, um, uh, you know, you're, you are judged by your big games. And I thought that that was, that was a heavyweight fight. And... There was something, you know, like I said, I'd almost like to, you know, kind of pivot a little bit to some of the other the other teams where I don't know. Can I throw one quick one more thing about you related to Alabama? You thought you I remember in the offseason, you thought I was too high on Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin. Uh, they basically picked their score against Tulane. They got the 61 points. We're going, to, we're going to Ole Miss Tulane right now. We're jumping. Well, here's why. Okay. Matt, Corral, Matt Corral is the fifth-ranked passer in the country. Ole Miss plays Alabama in two weeks. Uh, given what you've seen from those two teams, how much of a shot do you give the Rebels to pull it off? I give them a shot. I don't – like, I'm going to pump the brakes a little on Ole Miss. I mean, you know – 
they beat Tulane. Tulane's better under Willie Fritz. Uh, but Oklahoma it's, had troubles with Tulane. Yeah, Stu, I, again, I would pump the brakes on it a little. Oklahoma, by the way, you know, had a lot of trouble with Nebraska, too. So I, I think that may be more of an Oklahoma thing right now. I mean, to you know, that's kind of maybe the segue into these other, you know, the Clemson, Oklahoma, Ohio states where it's like, ooh, these teams are right yeah. now not what they used to be. But, well, let's talk about it because, okay, Alabama looked vulnerable, but at the end of the day, they went on the road and beat the number 11 team in the country. Oklahoma was playing a Nebraska team that has looked just awful for the most part, certainly coming into this season and against Illinois. Uh, Clemson was playing Georgia Tech, who lost to NIU, a team that Michigan just beat the drums off of yesterday, and scored 14 points. Like, there's some major brand name programs out there that I would be hitting the panic button on. Who would you be the most, if you were a fan of the teams, those, let's say it's those three teams, who would you be the most worried if you were? Like Clemson, Clemson, Clemson plays the worst, plays the weakest in the weakest conference by far. Yeah, and, and it's easy to say, okay, well, they'll be fine in ACC play, but Georgia Tech is one of the, probably one of the worst teams they'll play in there. I mean, I, I would I would probably panic the most if I'm an Oklahoma fan. Because you the one that has the the one that actually hasn't lost a game yet. They haven't lost a game, but you know, like you, you just dumped on Tulane. Nebraska hasn't been I mean, how on earth does Oklahoma end up in a one score game against that I don't care if it's game of the century, maybe Nebraska got more into the rivalries. We've talked we talked in the offseason about Spencer Rattler and He's being talked about as the number one pick. And we're like, well, he's played one season. I wouldn't necessarily say he, you know, he, he had his moments. I wouldn't say it was the most amazing season. And now all of a sudden it's just like felt like we skipped over uh, a, a period in his career straight to number one pick. And yeah, to, needless to say, he's not looked like a number one pick. Uh, he certainly didn't against Nebraska. Now, I, he wasn't, you know, throwing interceptions. He wasn't having a Michael Penix type disaster game by any means but it just it didn't look like in Lincoln Riley Oklahoma offense it was very conservative and he wasn't really trying to throw downfield um I feel I don't know if of course you can never tell like how much of that is him how much of that is we've just come to expect that Oklahoma will always have a a, a D.D. Westbrook a C.D. Lamb a Marquise Brown type receiver, and maybe they don't have that right now. And I, they, they just look very disjointed. Yeah, I think they just haven't looked that crisp, and they haven't hit as many of those plays that we expect. I still, everything I've heard is they have a really, they have a lot of confidence in the skill guys they have, but it just, they looked a little, they've looked a little off. Now, it's good for them because they looked a little off and they're still undefeated. But no doubt, it's just, it's different. I mean, when you look at them, uh, this is interesting. You know, Oklahoma, which is, has been a big play group as much as anybody, they are tied for second to last in the Big 12 in plays of 30 yards or longer. Um, you know, like that, just going back, that metric, you have to find, um, you have to go back, to before Lincoln Riley was the head coach to see when they're not ranked in the top two. And they're almost every year the number one team in, in the Big 12 in that. So the big play has not been there the way so far. And and I don't know. Like, as I look at these three teams, the team that I feel like right now is the shakiest is Ohio State. They're, they really looked... Um, you know, first of all, their pass rush has not been what it what it almost always is. It's been really listless. Uh, Ryan Day changed basically. Yeah, Kerry Coombs is the defensive coordinator, but now Matt Barnes is the who is a secondary coach and a former special teams guy. Now he is the play caller, basically running the defense, and that's a significant change. Matt Barnes, by the way, he was not the defense coordinator in name the year that DJ Durkin was. It was basically shelved when that the Jordan McNair tragedy happened. I remember like Matt Barnes was actually the guy running the defense for Maryland then. And he actually did a 
pretty good job on it. But, man, their linebackers have looked really bad the last couple of weeks. And, again, it's not like Tulsa has been, um, you know, it's not like Tulsa's UCF or Cincinnati. And they were hanging with them. And, really, it took Trayvon Henderson to have an all-time game, rush for almost 300 yards, a freshman running back there. Because C.J. Stroud did not have a great game either. And I feel like a little bit, I'm not saying this is like a like how Texas used, you know, was under Sam Ellinger, but I do feel like Ohio State is kind of tilted into one of those programs where it's like our offense is so good, we're going to just have to lean on it. And that's a lot of pressure to put on and basically a true freshman quarterback, no matter how good his running back and wide receivers are, um, because the defense right now is so shaky. And uh, to me, like... Of the three teams we're talking about, we've already said we think the ACC is dreadful right now. And the Big 12, I think, is a, is a, is a little better than that. But if you look at the Big 10 right now, I feel like Iowa, like I thought they were going to be very good, but I feel like Iowa looks like they're going to be a tough out. I feel like Michigan right now, their offense has got an identity and they have been very impressive. I get it. They haven't played great competition but, but if you watch them, you're like, they look actually pretty good. And Penn State, I think, can build off of that win uh, over Auburn. And I think Penn State is good. Now, I'm not going to say, you know, Maryland's 3-0, and but, you know, they haven't, they have, you know, they're 3-0 against almost nobody, but I don't think they looked as sharp as Michigan does. So you, I feel like, um, were very confident about Ohio State coming out of there. Do you feel like they lose another game before in the regular season? Right now, I do, yeah. Um, and, and really, my perception of that division has changed considerably. I mean, going into the season, I felt like you know, we both talked about the defense could be shaky. And I think I said to you on this podcast, well, okay, let's say Ohio State takes a step back. Who in that division would actually rise up and take their place? And we couldn't, we couldn't name anybody. But Penn State's had two big wins so far. I thought what stood out to me about the Auburn game is – uh, yes, they played great defense for the most part. Tank Bigsby got his yards, but but they kept them out of the end zone a lot. Um, but Sean Clifford is the guy who's who's had the, the question marks hovering over him for three years, and he had a great game. Uh, but the one that in Michigan, like you said, is just running the ball down people's throats. They're not even trying to pass because they haven't had to. Certainly, they will play somebody at some point when they do. Uh, but it's been a pretty a pretty um, remarkable transformation. From last season, the one that really is is impressing me is Michigan State. Uh, didn't have very many expectations for them. Uh, yeah, you know, I thought Mel Tucker. This is still a rebuilding job, but you talk about a transfer having a big impact. Kenneth Walker, the the Wake Forest transfer running back, has has come in there and you know right out of the gate went for 240, 250, I can't remember the exact number of yards against. Uh, Northwestern. He had another huge game last night, uh, yesterday, uh, against Miami. He's leading the country at 164 yards per game. Peyton Thorne, it's been ages since Michigan State had a quarterback that that you really respected. Uh, certainly going back to like the last, maybe, maybe, I don't know. Would you, would you feel comfortable saying Peyton Thorne already looks like the most uh, competent Michigan State quarterback probably since Connor Cook's uh, last, whenever his last season was there? You know, Brian Lewerke had some good games early in his career. Like, not his last year, but in his junior, like in his soft, like he, he was pretty good. So I don't want to completely act like, you know, it was awful then. You know, he, he was pretty good early in his career. He was, he was definitely capable. And I thought the receivers were good. Remember, I think you're forgetting that, yes, they were really good on defense, but they were, those were pretty good teams Michigan State had. Oh, for sure, but but it was always well. They went to the playoff in 2015. After that, they didn't strike fear in you by any means, and they certainly went from kind of being right there with Ohio State for a few years, beating them um, two out of three years, I want to say, to getting blown blown out by them. Um, and because the program regressed so much under the last few years of D'Antonio, yeah, I didn't think Mel Tucker could have this kind of impact this quick. Now you could say Miami's a disaster and whatnot. Northwestern has certainly gone from big 10 top 10 team last season to, to, to 
falling behind 24-0 at Duke. But, yeah, I just think that's an interesting transformation. I don't know that any of those teams, I'm ready to say, you know, Michigan State, Big Ten East champ, Penn State, Big Ten East I'm not ready to do that yet, but to your question, yeah, I think it's going to be very hard for Ohio State or anyone to beat all of the other teams that we're talking about. And like you said, Maryland is a factor as well. Look, Iowa, Rutgers, Rutgers, might, play at Iowa. Rutgers might be a factor. They have to play that. I'm not the, that that place has been a nasty place to play, but that's a road game. Like Shiano's like got them believing again. Like I feel like, and I'm not saying that I think Rutgers or Maryland are going to be top 10 teams. They are much improved. And by the way, Rutgers has, we had Joshua Perry on right before the season. We talked about, they have some playmakers. Like their skill guys are actually pretty good. If you, if you watch them. Yeah. Well, Ohio State's next four games are Akron, Rutgers, Maryland, and Indiana. Uh, so the good news is they've got some time. I feel like they've got time to, like those are teams they can probably just outscore. Uh, they've got time to, to try to get this defense figured out before. If they Penn. play, Stu, if they play Rutgers on the road like they played Tulsa yesterday, they will lose. Bold statement, but probably it's not really. I mean, I, I watched that game. It was like, yeah, I know what the final score looked like. It wasn't like that for like, you know, the three quarters plus. You know, the only and, and reason Rutgers, I'm willing to give Ohio State a little bit of a pass for that performance yesterday is you're coming off the Oregon loss. You're you're probably going to have a bit of a letdown, and also, and this was very weird, but Ohio State, which usually sells out the horseshoe every week had its lowest attendance since 1971, 76,000 people. That's a lot of empty seats at the Horseshoe. I don't think it was all people just jumping off the bandwagon. I think, um, I mean, I really don't blame anybody if they don't feel comfortable going to a big stadium right now. But it's just, it was like, you know, to go from the atmosphere they had the week before to that, I could see why you might sleepwalk a little bit. Now, let's not overlook, like you said, Trayvon Henderson, their freshman running back, Breaks Archie Griffin's 49-year freshman rushing record. You know, that's a very encouraging sign. But, yeah, the defense is a mess right now. Um, you know, like I said, they, they okay, you're right. They, they can't just, like, show up and roll out the ball at Rutgers or against Maryland. But if they can survive those, uh, you know, the, the important game, the most important games are going to be Penn State on October 30th. And then back-to-back at the end, Michigan State and Michigan. So, um, what per- got before we get better. Before we go leave the Big Ten, uh, what percent chance would you have that this is the year Jim Harbaugh beats Ohio State? What, give me the, uh, the number. I, I want so badly to believe in that, and and I will always have the memory of 62-39. I truly thought Michigan was, gonna, was the better team that year, and then you saw what happened. So what percentage chance right now? I think I'll probably keep it pretty low, like 20. What about okay. you? I would say 35%. Okay, so neither of us and, are quite going there yet. No, and I would have said it was like 15 the beginning of the year, and now it's 35%. I'd like to see Michigan play one of those better teams in the Big Ten so we can get more of a read on it. But, you know, I think the Washington game didn't turn out to be quite the measuring stick you would have hoped. Uh, they clearly have problems. Uh, but, you know, to go from I, – I, I had this in final thoughts. They – have run for more games, or sorry, rushed for more yards through three games than they did in the whole six-game season last year. They are um, they are just pounding the ball. So these teams are all concerning, and we haven't mentioned Clemson yet. And frankly, Clemson Clemson's offense is a, is a tire fire right now. Uh, Georgia, you want to excuse that on Georgia's down and defense, okay? But Georgia Tech is not good, uh, and. It, the final score was 14-8. to eight. Uh, Credit to Brent Venable's defense. They have yet to give up a touchdown in three games. Georgia Tech did get down there uh, inside the five-yard line with a chance to uh, possibly maybe tie the game. And James Skalski snuffed out the shovel pass. By the way, there were a lot of bad shovel passes for whatever reason during college football on Saturday. But how is DJ Uyunglele, who had you know set the Notre I think he set the record last year for most yards by a opponent opposing quarterback at Notre Dame Stadium three games he's yet to reach 200 passing yards 
their offense is, a, is just a total mess. And you may say, okay, they don't play anybody in the ACC. Well, they're going to play Wake Forest, who, who blew out uh, Florida State. They're going to play uh, you know, Louisville, had a decent win against UCF. None of these teams are great, but I don't know that they're any worse than Georgia Tech. So the biggest thing that jumps out at me is Clemson is dead last in the ACC, which is not a great offensive league by any stretch either. Dead last in the ACC in yards per play and total yards. That's staggering, especially when, yeah, they played Georgia. They also played an FCS team in there. So That's amazing. You know, just to, to be there with the skill talent, I mean, the receivers they have. Now, the offensive line has been a big concern, and it just feels like they have, right now, I don't know what the identity of Clemson is on offense. And I think, again, they're, they're in a league that is so mediocre right now that they could skate by. I just, you know, when I, again, in a, I don't do a top 10 ranking anymore, but I was just like, would you put them in the top 10 based on what you've watched from them? No, I don't. I mean, they already have a loss. And they look terrible in the game yesterday. If you have them in the top ten, you're that you're still hanging. You're not on paying it. Your, you're not watching. You're yeah, not. You're watching. hanging on to your preseason expectations of them. Um, you know, I didn't have Florida anywhere near the top ten. I'd have them in there now. You just have to kind of react to what what you see. What you're seeing. I, their offensive line must just be a complete mess because they're not. You know, when I think of the uh, when I think of the Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Clemson offense. They take shots. They they go, we're, our receivers are better than your DBs. We're going to just throw up these 50-50 balls, and we're going to come up with them more than 50% of the time. They're not even trying to do that, um, despite the fact that DJ has a, has a great arm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, Dabo referred to them as a work in progress. Well, that work in progress is going to play at NC State this week. Uh, NC State obviously didn't look great against Mississippi State. Um, but they're probably still one of the better teams in the conference. So, you know, this will be, I don't think this will be a, another season where you just don't even bother to pay attention to Clemson because they're just going to beat every ACC team by 40. Right now, uh, it's a bit of an adventure. So, Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Stu, obviously the biggest game of the night after the you know, the game in the afternoon with Florida and Alabama, was in Happy Valley. It was the whiteout uh, atmosphere. Auburn visited. And, you know, just sitting in our green room, like that game felt different than all the other games. Just the energy in there. Um, even, the, even to some degree compared to the Florida one, I felt like just, and again, maybe it was because um, because of the night atmosphere, because of the whiteout, uh, something about it. Uh, I thought Auburn's defense actually, I thought, played really, really well. I mean, it was hard for Noah Kane and, a, and some good running backs to get anything going. Um, but it's a big win for it's a big win for the Big Ten as much as anything. I mean, what was your takeaway from watching that that Penn State team, which already now has two really good wins, by the way, in the first three weeks of the season? Yeah, I mean. An incredible scene, and then afterward, Holly Rowe is interviewing James Franklin and Sean Clifford, and and they're fired up. They had this big win, and it's almost like last year, twenty twenty, never happened. You know, they they the it's hard to believe it was just last season that they started zero and five, and we knew there were a lot of weird circumstances that went into it, but you you can't ask for a better way to just kick that to the curb. 
by beating Wisconsin and Auburn two of the first three weeks of the season. I don't. We haven't seen the new AP poll yet. I would have to think they're solidly in the top ten at this point. And part they should the, be in the t- they should be in the top five at this point. I think part of the CFP conversation. Um, the The defense has been terrific uh, in both games. Um, Tank Bigsby had, I think, over a hundred yards. But you know, Bo Nix, and I feel like this is the story of his whole career. Uh, struggled mightily in that atmosphere. Um, but I think the thing I'd be most encouraged about is Sean Clifford, who had a miserable season last year. Uh, he only had four incompletions the entire night. Uh, he had found, you know, it just seemed like anytime they needed a big play, he would find Jahan Dotson or one of the, tight, the tight ends. ends yeah. Why Penn State always has a great tight end, bigger, great pass catching tight end. So, yeah, it was a really big win for them. I, I wrote about this in my final thoughts column. Towards the end, Kirk Herbstreet went on a little bit of a, a soliloquy about how this had been such a great week and such a great atmosphere, and specifically because it was the Big Ten versus the SEC. And when you think about it, you know, Auburn had just entered the top 25 the week before. There wasn't This wasn't a team that, this wasn't a, a Ohio State-Oregon type game where you've seen it coming all offseason. It felt as big as it did because Auburn's in the SEC. And anytime you can beat an SEC team, it's a measuring stick game. And so I'm thinking about that going, yeah, he said, he said, I hope we have more of these uh, in the future. And I was like, I agree. I, the more Big Ten SEC I can get, the better. And then it's like, huh, how come the Big Ten wants to be part of this alliance where, if anything, you know, they, they're not saying they can't schedule the SEC, but are you really going to if you're already going to play one ACC and one Pac-12 team every year. Uh, there are some great home and homes already scheduled, especially Ohio State, Alabama, and Ohio State, Georgia. So we have that to look forward to. But George Klyukov, the Pac-12 commissioner, has been going out there uh, preaching the gospel of the alliance to anybody who will listen, and has been very adamant that it's going to be, you know, those two games a year uh, scheduled not 10, 15 years in advance, but but right before the season, so you have the best possible matchups. And don't get me wrong. I think it's a great idea. I, I do like it. But I feel like the ACC and the Pac-12 need it way more than the Big Ten does. If I'm the Big Ten, you know, forget this, like, spite toward Greg Sankey and whatnot. You're the Big Ten. You're, you, you're, you make a lot, as much money, if not more, than the SEC. You're not – the OU Texas thing is not a threat to you in any way. Play them. I want more Penn State-Auburn. I don't want more Penn State-Virginia or Penn State – Utah or whatever you know games they're going to slate as part of this thing. I agree. I agree. It was uh, like it just felt like a big game. Now look, you're going to get some of those matchups that we're not going to care about. You're not going to care about Northwestern Vandy, for instance. I mean, you're going to care about it, but no one else is. You know, like there are. It's when the it's when the, it's big on big that we care about it. Big stadium, big venue. You know, just bigger rankings and, I think and it you all can matters. get big on big in the alliance when it's Ohio if it's going to be Ohio State playing Oregon or Clemson or or I don't know if Florida State ever figures itself out uh we'll get to that USC in a right but the difference with the SEC is I there's nine or ten teams that you could put on the schedule and there and the Penn State fans or the Ohio State fans or frankly any Big Ten fans are gonna be like that's a big game we want to prove ourselves against Auburn, against Arkansas, against Ole Miss, and certainly Alabama, LSU, Florida. So um, I'm not saying you should necessarily, Kevin Warren, <laughs> get out of your non-contract with those other two conferences necessarily, but I just I feel like they might be boxing themselves in and frankly settling a little bit. I know that it once you can't extrapolate too much from one season, but the ACC and the Pac-12 have been terrible this year. With one exception, obviously. Oregon over Ohio State may be the best non-conference victory anybody has all season. But just yesterday we watched uh, Colorado lose 30 to nothing to Minnesota. We watched uh, Utah lose to San Diego State. We watched Arizona. Poor Arizona. They're so bad lose to Northern Arizona, and then the most, you know, the most, uh, the toughest one for the Pac-12, you know, you're already kind of looking at only two teams, Oregon and UCLA, to carry the banner for you in UCLA. 
loses a thriller to Fresno State behind one of the all-time great quarterback performances from Jake Hayner at Fresno State. So Pac-12 is down to one undefeated team, and the ACC is down to two, and those two are Wake Forest and BC. Yeah, that's pretty. That that sounds pretty bleak. Now look, it's, some of it's the, a lot bleak. of the undefeated are going to fall. You know, keep falling and everything like that. Uh, shout out to Jake Hayner. I mean, if you didn't get the chance to see the game because you don't have Pac-12 Network, pretty much everybody. But um, you, like, I've never seen a player look so in agony as he did. Uh, the the one touchdown pass he threw. I was like, I didn't. I was like, that had to be a late hit because nobody was near him when he released the ball, and then you realized. The play before he got he got really hit by two guys and um, Ali Caho kind of drilled him in the in the ribs or like you know it looked like he was wincing from that the rest of the game in total agony and I thought um, our friend Yogi Roth I thought did a very good job of telling Jake Hayner's story and working it into the broadcast and you really you know he's just he's an interesting kid like the mom's like a big um, you know. Uh, She's like, I think she's a uh, local TV news person, right, in the Bay Area, and I'm, and pretty famous. And he was the guy who started out at Washington. I thought he was going to win the job. And obviously, when uh, you have a five-star come home like Jacob Eason, Jacob Eason ends up getting the job. And he decides, hey, I'm going to go to Fresno. I just want to play. I'm not going to wait this thing out. And they're really good on offense. I mean, we've talked a decent amount about Fresno. I feel like, you know, for the first couple of weeks of the season, they have really good skill guys. Uh, you know, they, they're they good. And it was fun to see a guy. I think, you know, you'd see it on social media. People were, were seeing what how not only was he throwing for almost 500 yards, it was how he was doing it. Because, um, you know, like DTR actually played pretty well beyond him losing the ball in the second quarter when he's trying to throw. But in the second half, he was pretty sharp. It was just, it was Jake Hayner's night. It was very cool to see a guy like that. You know, like those are stories we should be, we should be celebrating. It's, uh, I would caution people, and we've, you know, we've spent all this time talking about this team looks bad and this team looks bad. And, you know, teams do get better over the course of the season. Some get worse. Uh, but also just mathematically, some of these teams that you're so panicked about are going to go 10 and two anyway. And maybe I'm not like, I, I didn't watch the UCLA Fresno state game and go, okay, UCLA. Yeah, we were, we were wrong about them. Fresno state's pretty good. They also gave Oregon a scare, if you recall. Uh, and, and they, you know, I think UCLA based on what I'm seeing of the PAC 12, probably still one of the two best teams in the conference. Uh, that being said, all of this chaos, all of this vulnerability, you know what team stands to benefit it from benefit from that possibly the most, Bruce? The Cincinnati Bearcats. Their road to a playoff berth was always going to be contingent on about eight different dominoes, and one of them was knowing how the committee kind of frowns on the group of five. They need they need some of these power conferences to have two lost champions, right? You don't want to have to if you're undefeated Cincinnati, you don't want to be getting. Uh, compared to a bunch of 12 and 1 power five champs of course you also have to go undefeated and they took the first big step toward that saturday uh you know we've been talking for eight months about how they play both indiana and notre dame in a three-week period they they were dominated in the first half it, things were not looking good for cincinnati in the first half they were down 14 nothing but it felt like 28 nothing uh because indiana had a couple uh red zone trips where they didn't score and then Micah McFadden, their great All-American linebacker, got ejected for targeting, and it was just on like a, on a third on a third down play. Cincinnati is punting, yeah, and, and Indiana is going to get the ball, probably in very good field position, with a chance to go up seventeen, if not twenty-one to nothing. Instead, not only does he get thrown out of the game, so Cincinnati gets a first down, and now they're driving. They go down to score, and before you know it, it's fourteen to ten at halftime, right. as opposed to could have been you know, 17 or 21 on the road. Um, here's what I wanted to ask you on on that. So, and by the way, no, you know, we haven't mentioned them yet. Notre Dame has not looked good at all. Like, I mean, they scuffled with Florida State. We know Florida State is so bad. We're going to talk about them in like five minutes. Um, they, they had their hands full of the Toledo team that's not very good. And they didn't look very good against Purdue, but they're still undefeated. They are a very uh, hollow 3-0, but they are 3-0. But, 
But here's the here's the problem if I was a Cincinnati fan, and I hate it because I feel like we're moving the goalposts, but that's how this stuff works with the CFP. Indiana is now one and two, and the one win is against Idaho. They got to go to, I mean, let's say they get by Western Kentucky on the road. They got to go to Penn State. Yeah, good luck on that trip. Michigan State now looks better. Then they have after those two games, and they got Ohio State right after them. Uh, then they have road games to Maryland and Michigan. Uh, you know, it's like it would not surprise me if Indiana ended up five and seven or four and eight at this point. And that's not going to help Cincinnati at all. Yeah, well, like I said, there are all these dominoes that need to, to fall into place. And one of them was they need at least they needed, you know, first of all, you have to beat these teams. And then you need at least one of Cincinnati or Notre Dame to be a top 25 team at the end of the season. No, you need more it, than that, Stu. You need, you need one of them to be like a top 15 and the other to be a top 25 season. You well, can't ideal, afford like Notre Dame to yes. be 19 and, and Indiana to be 5-7 and seven or 4-8. and eight. Ideally, yes, but I, that, that already seems out of, the, out of the picture to me. I mean, IU, the, really the biggest difference for IU from last season is Michael Penix is not the same quarterback. And this was his third knee injury. He is now, he's played, you know, two teams with a pulse, Iowa and Cincinnati, and thrown three interceptions against both of them. Two of those were pick sixes against Iowa. In this game, all three of those interceptions were, you know, all three of them were like, why are you throwing that? Don't, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And I just, I feel like he probably can't run like he used to and doesn't feel confident taking off and running when there's pressure. And so he's just forcing these awful throws. And Cincinnati turned those into points. Uh, credit to Cincinnati's defense. We knew they were very good. They, they took advantage uh, against Indiana. Like, my opinion of Cincinnati hasn't changed at all. I still think they're very good. But like you said, the resume might be not going to work out necessarily for them. They the good news is they're starting so high. That yeah, but, it's going to be yeah, but we saw them get 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 glass ceiling last year, and that was in a pandemic year. I think this. But is that was, be... but that was. I don't even remember where they started. Maybe they. I can't remember if they were ranked at the start. Nobody, no group of five teams since they started the playoff has started the season in the top ten of the AP poll. So that by the time you get to those first committee rankings, if they're still undefeated, just by inertia, they're going to be top four or five in the AP poll. Is the committee? How much is the committee really going to? I don't. I wouldn't have a ton of faith. Lower? I wouldn't have a ton of faith in the committee. They could have them seven. The problem is going to be they're not. Other teams are going to have wins, and they're going to be you know a, a, a seven and one or a, even a six and two that may end up being right next to them. And then you're starting to play like it doesn't help them that UCF has already lost. And by the way, and know, lost D- Dylan Gabriel. Dylan Gabriel for you know a month. Who knows how long? Navy has been horrible. Temple is horrible. Um, it didn't help them that, like, you know, they had a couple of things that happened, like Tulane. It would have really been great for them if Tulane could have been competitive with Ole Miss. They weren't. Um, you know, UCF well, they do, is terrible. Bruce, they did catch two breaks. A Hail Mary? Yeah, it could have been It could have been complete disaster for their resume yesterday. SMU, November 20th, who one of the better teams in that conference, needed a Hail Mary to survive Louisiana Tech, but they got the Hail Mary. And then in one of the crazier games of the day, Memphis beats Mississippi State, which is a good win. And Mem- they don't play Memphis in the regular season, but maybe they could in the conference championship. And I'm not sure, you know, I feel like once or twice a year you see just an absolutely egregious officiating error. It doesn't get much worse than this. Uh, fourth quarter, close game, Mississippi State punts. It sure looks like two of their guys downed the ball. You see the ref signal, make a signal. <laughs> and then a, a Memphis player comes running over, picks it up, and runs 94 yards the other way, and it counts. And it's a touchdown. And then like a half hour, ESPN, ESPN shows footage where there's actually two <laughs> number fours on the team for Memphis. So it shouldn't have counted anyway. They should have been penalized. One of the Like when I'm watching them show the beginning of this highlight, I'm like, man, the guy who was rushing the punter like, was that far down on one side of the field? And then he must have sprinted 75 yards, scooped up the ball, and run the other way. Only, no, there was two guys wearing number four. And I'm just thinking, when Leach sees this, it's going to blow yeah. his mind how bad he got effed. And I won't use his word for it. But just, like, 
The SEC, Man, to its credit, does not wait till Monday to put out the we screwed up uh, statement. It was on Twitter within like two hours. But, okay, I learned something. I thought that as soon as somebody on the other team just touches the ball, that's the end. But no, you have to like have possession of it and and nobody has a chance to return it before they actually are supposed to rule it dead. Now, this official did the stop the clock signal, so it should have been over right there. And then the two number four should have invalidated the whole thing. Uh, so so that's how Memphis prevailed. And because of that, you know, I mean, Cincinnati has everything to go right that can go right. And those two teams didn't suffer a non-conference loss. So that that went for them. Speaking of bad calls, I have a pet peeve on this. So something, and I, I'm trying to remember if it was, I think it was in Oklahoma State, Boise State. And this situation had come up earlier in the day in another game I was watching where there is a fumble. It doesn't look like it should stand. The player scoops it up and runs. They let the guy score or go downfield, and then they review it. In the case of the Boise State game, there is a play that you kind of watch and go, that looks like it's a fumble. The the uh, Boise State player picked it up, ran it in, and the referees basically blew it dead there. And then they reviewed the call, and they got it wrong. And so instead of having a touchdown, they just get the ball, I want to say, at like the 40. And it's like, you know, because I'm sitting there yesterday, I was in the, like I did a, a TV hit during the uh, USC Washington State game to talk about the USC coaching search. And while I'm in there, I'm basically using um, Mike Pereira's spot and I'm using his like pack. So, you know, but Blandino's in there with me and we were kind of talking about like, you know, what is supposed to happen when that and man, the refs, I think, really cost them a touchdown at that point because they you're supposed to let it play out if it's borderline, and that was definitely borderline. We haven't even talked about the fact that Penn State, that they took a down away from them. That was also an SEC officiating crew that they ended up punting on third down because nobody in the stadium seemed to realize that they had um, lost second down. Last thing I want to bring up, because you brought it up when we were talking last night, Miami, it's not looking good for Manny Diaz. Um, I would not be surprised if there's a coaching change coming that way. What I was just floored by is when you said, you know, so Florida State, they're 0-3. They got blown, they lost from an FCS team and they got blown out by Wake Forest. You said, I think they may have a coaching change coming. I was like, are you kidding me? You think Florida State would fire a coach after two seasons yet again? Like... They fired a... They fired... By the way, they fired a coach... You know, not after two seasons with Willie Taggart. Didn't they fire him with right. like four so, games left in his second season? I mean, it's yeah, it's it's crazy. At some like, point, you've got to give the coach a chance, um, even if it's as bad as it looks. You can't keep changing coaches every two years and expect to ever get out of this cycle. Here's the thing, like, and I like Mike Norvell. I thought he would do better than he's doing. He did. He had a rough year last year. Um, but this, they are 0-3. They, they were competitive. They took a ton of transfers, which you would have hoped they would have gotten better. Um, fine. You lose to Notre Dame. They were competitive. It was a fun atmosphere. All that's, you know, fine. The next week you have the worst loss FSU has had in, I can't remember when, you know, they lost to Jacksonville state the way they lost. Um, you know, you can say whatever you want about Willie Tiger. Willie Tiger didn't have any losses like that. And then they got blown out yesterday by Wake Forest. I mean, it wasn't even close. I mean, they're 0-3. You know, like, if you have fired Willie Taggart after a year and a half, like, I think all bets are off there in terms of like, oh, yeah, we're going to give, we're going to make sure. Because, again, Mike Norvell, we're we're coming out of a pandemic. That was a crazy year to have a first year at a program. But, man, I, I wouldn't say that, oh, it's a sure thing that Mike Norvell is going to get another year now, not after the last couple of weeks. I mean, I just think that, you know, Florida State could go any Florida State have an endless point. reserve of buyout money? Didn't they have to pay Willie Taggart over $20 million? Yeah, I mean, and they, and then again, and they did it. And quite honestly, it's like, after that, I just don't know. All of a sudden, you start to feel like Auburn, except you don't have the as much of the, you know, you're, you aren't as good as them. I'm not giving up on Mike Norvell yet. Yeah, it's off to a bleak start this season. Uh, 
but I do think that they look. I'm not giving up on them either. I, I but I like I we were talking about on the on my car ride home from the studio last night. Like I don't think like like I, nothing would surprise me with Florida State now after the last two weeks. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I mean the thing people need to realize is with the early sign with the early signing period now, these new when your coach gets hired, you know that that class is a lost cause. It used to be you could come in and. You know, I remember when Urban Meyer got the Ohio State job. He came in, and in the month of January, he got, like, a bunch – Taylor Decker, uh, Noah Spence, just off the top of my head. Like, a bunch – he got a bunch of big-time guys to flip to Ohio State. Now, most of those guys are already signed. So, Mike Norell only now signed his first real recruiting class. And, yeah, you just can't start over again yet. But you also – but also, Stu, now you have the transfer portal. You didn't have that a couple of years ago. I, yeah, but you can't. That can't be the lifeblood of your program. Uh, I'm not saying it isn't, but you you can you can. It is hard. I think I hear what you're saying, but you have the transfer portal now. I'm not saying that people should fire coaches after a year or two, but it you you can get a lot more experienced players. It's less of a development deal than before, and I think that is one of the things that is going to get. Um, you know, I think like you can't really say, okay, well, you because you lose a class. I mean, they signed a ton of transfers with this group. I do think Manny Diaz. I think you would agree is in real trouble. He's just had so many, just you know, games there where they just get so embarrassed. You know, I think of that bowl game against Louisiana Tech. I think of that UNC game last year. Miami, you know, Alabama. Obviously, they get blown off the field, and then. You know, not a good look to get blown out of home by Michigan State. And so if that happens, you can already see what, what we're heading toward, and that is the Miami— You're going to piss off the people in Eugene, Oregon right yes, now. Yes, the Miami-USC bidding war over Mario Cristobal. Nobody is more Miami than Mario Cristobal. His, you know, at the Oregon game, he invited his high school coach from Miami from 30 years ago. He was in the front row. The, the guy— you know, went to the U, was the coach of FIU. He's he is Miami through and through. But if you're at Oregon and you have developed that program into a program that we think has a chance to make playoff appearances and, and, and you know, 2022 people are pointing to there as like they could have a national championship caliber team. Are you going to give that up to go to a school that can't pay you as much as Oregon and is just a you know massive rebuilding job waiting to happen. I don't know uh, honestly. I know that in my mind, just knowing Mario and I look, I went to school with him, so I've known him for a long time. Um, th- like USC can pay my it can pay Mario a lot more than Miami can, but Miami is home, as you said, all those things. Miami, you know his his brother Lou is a Miami Dade police officer family is entrenched there i mean that is he is so part of that culture um i was with him because we were doing their bowl game when they played michigan state basically when the miami job came open and when miami scrambled to turn around and bring manny diaz back to be become the head coach they couldn't have afforded mario's buyout at that point which was somewhere between 11 and 12 million dollars i'm not sure miami could afford mario's buyout now at nine million so it may be a non-starter even at that point. The only thing that I do wonder about, because all everything you said, I agree with. Like I know Mario thinks he's got a really good team now, and I think deep down he thinks they're going to be even better in 2022 and in 2023. The flip side of this is this may be the the last realistic time that the you know if he wants to be the head coach at Miami, and if it gets that point, they haven't fired Manny Diaz. They're still. I suspect the rest of the season if they can they can turn it, but if it's on his radar, I'm not sure. You know, like I said, they're going to be really good, and you know, he thinks they're going to be really good in 2022, 2023. I don't think Mario Cristobal is anything like you know. Would Ryan Day become an NFL head coach before too long? It wouldn't shock me if Ryan Day became an NFL head coach. It wouldn't shock me if if. Lincoln Riley became an NFL head coach. I'd be very surprised if Mario Cristobal became an NFL head coach. I think with, to me, the two jobs most likely that would give him like a thought 
would be the two job, the one job that is open at USC, and the other job where now the head coach is really on the hot seat. Um, and I have no idea. I'm not even sure if, if Mario has a sense of what's what he really thinks would be best for him. But if he ever wants to be the Miami head coach, you know, it's going it's going to be a rebuilding job. I mean, no matter what, you know, it's like you're not going to get elevated there, right? It's after a team that played for a national title. It's just not how it works. You say this might be the only chance. At the rate, you know, at the, the last 20 years of Miami football, I think you can just wait four years and there'll be another opening. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty wild when you think about, you know, when we were growing up or when you were even in school there, that Miami, you know, Howard Schnellenberger, brings the program to prominence. He leaves. Uh, Jimmy Johnson comes in. They don't miss a beat. He leaves. Dennis Erickson comes in. They don't miss a beat. Then they have the sanctions, but Butch Davis was, you know, gets them back to where they are. And ever since Larry Coker got fired, they cannot figure out the right formula. And they've tried everything. They've tried. Randy Shannon was the, you know, the great uh, defensive coordinator, great former player there. He can't get it done. Al Golden... I don't remember who else was in the mix, but he was, you know, the hot mid-major coach, if you will, at Temple. He didn't work out. Uh, Mark Richt was a SEC, you know, SEC championship accomplished head coach. He didn't work out. And Manny Diaz, you know, we just talked about Cristobal and all his Miami ties. Manny Diaz is literally the son of the former mayor of Miami, and it's not going so well. So I, I don't. What's the what's the magic answer here? Like what? What do you need I think to be? Each of those guys, each of those guys struggled for a different reason. Larry Coker, you know, who did win a national title and started out 34 and 0, or I think, I don't know if he started out 34 and 0, but he started out probably like 22 and 0 or something like that. Um, I think his issue was ultimately lack of accountability. You know, he there, there was an edge in the program before he took over, he had great leadership in the locker room. Eventually, that that kind of petered out. Randy Shannon could not find the answer to have a good offensive coordinator. It just, I think, I think that, you know, Patrick Nix, Bo's dad, might have been like the 10th choice he had. And I just feel like it was sideways from there. Al Golden was, you know, he recruited it like he was still at a mid-major program. He lost the ties to South Florida. Mark Richt, offense similar to Randy Shannon, did not have a great feel for the offense. Mark Richt hired like his he, son as the quarterback coach was the was the big yeah. problem there. Now, Mark Richt does deserve credit, I think, for this. He infused a bunch of money and raised a lot of money to upgrade facilities, which was much needed. And I think that was important. Where Manny Diaz, I think, from talking to people who've been you know close to the program, have said is, are they physical enough and how they practice and some of those other things. And I think he's made a lot of good moves, but right now where they are struggling is on his side of the ball. Uh, they are not tackling well, and they do not look very physical. Offensive line has been awful at Miami for a long time. I felt like it's gotten a little better, but that's hard to get way better like overnight or in a year. And I think at some point there's just so much pressure on De'Ara King, who is like, you want to talk a little bit about Jake Hayner. I mean, he looks like he's being held together in some of these games by like, you know, like glue and scotch tape. And this is just a lot right now. I mean, I don't, I thought the one game they won, they didn't look very good in that game either nope. against App State. And App State's a good mid-major program, but still, if you're Miami, you, you got to be a little more dominant in that. And, you know, again, they're... This is look. They've had three games. They're all non-conference games. It's not like the ACC is very good. You know, it's possible they can they can get some momentum and start to grow from here. They got to get better on defense, though. And I think what's what's the tricky position for Manny Diaz is that is a fan base that will turn quick if they feel like it's not going in the right direction. And oh, I think they've I think, already like I said, turned. I, yeah, and look, I think that in a lot of ways, um, you look at it and you're like, man, this is, I think he's made some really good moves, but at the end of the day, um, you know, even the first hire he made, one of the first big hires he made was Dan Enos. That was a disastrous hire. Like you talked about that Louisiana Tech bowl game. 
they were horrible in that coming. You know, like the offense was such a mess. I thought Rhett Lashley was a good hire for him. But right now, um, they just feel like they are really struggling to get a lot of stuff sorted out. And they've been really sloppy. I think that, and we talked about this really last night, somebody in the either this year or next is going to hire Bill O'Brien as their head coach. Like That seems like a foregone conclusion to me, both because the last two Alabama OCs have gotten head co- Power 5 head coaching jobs and because Bill O'Brien was a pretty good NFL head coach. He, ha- he took over Penn State in, in the worst possible circumstances and kept them respectable. Why not Miami? I don't know about Miami. I thought you were going to say, here's here's what I would wonder about more than that. Um, you know, look, Miami's a pro town. I, I just don't know. The, the thing you wonder about, and yes, he got Christian Hackenberg, and he got Christian Hackenberg's dad to buy in. The thing you wonder about is, how good of a recruiter will he be? And, you know, whether, you know, like we talk about this with USC, we talk about it, you know, like you have to be somebody who can really recruit your ass off as a head coach. I'm sorry. And like one of the things that, and again, I'm not saying Bill O'Brien can't do this, but guys who come from the NFL, that's the biggest difference piece of this is the recruiting aspect of it. And if you're not going to be a guy who is busting your ass recruiting and is really, really on top of things, you're going to underachieve. I mean, cause you're in, you are going to go into a, into a lot of dog fights and recruiting. And I think that's going to, that's going to be a challenge. Now, look, one thing, and I, I did our um, big noon kickoff show yesterday morning, and I talked about the USC job. And I have an NFL scout I know who texted me right after because I had mentioned James Franklin as one of the guys I think is a prime candidate for USC. And this person was like, "Do you think Penn, Do you think Penn State would take Bill O'Brien back?" And I don't know the answer to that. Because, you know, if Penn State comes open, I think immediately you look at maybe Matt Campbell and or Luke Fickle. But at the same time, you know, and who knows how hot, um, who knows how hot Oregon stays. And then maybe Joe Moorhead looks like an option. I don't know. But, you know, the Bill O'Brien one was interesting when this guy said it, just because there were a lot of old guard Penn State people who really had a lot of respect for what Bill O'Brien did there. So I don't know if the fan base would want him back. I don't know if he would want to be back. And the job's certainly not open, but I just was like, whoa, you know, that was a that was something I had. Nobody is trying to get James is giving James Franklin the USC job more than you are, Bruce. I watched your TV hit during the game. It was all about James Franklin. Where am I wrong though? Who do you think is a better option? Well, here's the thing. I've agreed with you. I, I to this point I've said we've watched over the last few years, James Franklin has struggled to totally win over that fan base. He's been very criticized at times. And so my thing was, you know, people would be like, there's no way you would leave Penn State. He's a Pennsylvania native. Well, you kind of think like he might. And US, and if he's going to leave, USC would be a pretty, a pretty good spot for him. That being said, you watch that scene last night. They get the big win. If Penn State goes on to win the Big Ten this year, I, then I don't think he's leaving. Then I think he's getting a huge contract extension. He's got a, a number one... Well, probably won't finish number one, but right, number one type recruiting class coming in. You know, all of a sudden, we're all rah rod James Franklin at Penn State. So, if you're USC and you really want James Franklin, your best scenario would be for them to go like nine and three. Hmm. Um, I don't know the answer to that. You know, like I don't think him getting a huge contract extension at Penn State is going. Like I don't think that will be the the oh, I'm not going to go to USC or not. I think it's like after seven years, like he's got, at this point, the money I don't think is a, is is the issue. I think some of it was like, you know, some of the com- commitment to facilities and some of the other things in terms of the resources of the program, which I've heard they've upgraded, you know, in, the, in recent years. I ultimately think the question is, where do you want to be? Um, where do you want to raise your family? And where do you think has the bigger upside? Boy, Penn State fans are going to – you are not their friend right No, now. let's be honest. No, no, no. Let's be That's honest. It's funny, though. I, I, I mostly agree with you. I I saw somebody in my Twitter – Who is the Ohio State in the Pac-12 South? You don't have to sell me on why it's a good job. It's a good job for him. I think – No, I'm not saying why it's a good job. Like why if it's like what – is, what is a job that you have a better chance to win a national title at? 
that's realistically going to come open that one. Um, and, and also I, I just, I remember him at Vanderbilt and how he, he won over the city of Nashville at a school that, that never could. And I think he would fit in well in LA. But again, my thing is if, if Penn state goes on, they lose to Ohio state again and maybe one other game and they're going to the Outback bowl and USC wants him, I'm on the plane. But if this turns out to be a really great season, a Big Ten title season, maybe even a playoff season, he's not going to leave at that point. That would be who leaves the reigning Big Ten champion to go to another school. I think if it's a playoff, it is harder. If it's a Big Ten champion and he is... And playing in the Rose Bowl. Big Ten champion playing in the Rose Bowl. 11 and 2. I don't know. I don't know. That is a... That is an interesting dynamic. So tell me, if not James Franklin, who do you think should be the head coach? You haven't really said this. I don't. I, I haven't said it because I don't have the answer. I don't know that there's an. I mean, well, you can't say like, well, you keep pushing this, and it's like I think I mean, James Franklin is the. Let's not talk about James Franklin. You tell. No, you I think he's the best like, candidate for the job. I'm saying, and I'm just saying, maybe he won't necessarily leave for the job. And at that point, yeah, you might be there's right. not okay, an obvious. Be- yeah, that guy should definitely be the USC coach. Who, like, hey, Dante who Williams saying? is off to a great start. What if he ends up winning the job? We've seen this movie before. <laughs> it doesn't play well for USC. It doesn't. Uh, we've got time to sort that out. we got two months to figure out who the head coach of the USC job is. I think we should probably wrap this episode of the Audible. Are you already late for your son's football game? Not far from okay. it, yeah. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com and we answer them on our Wednesday episode. We'll see you next time. 